thank you, Lord, that we can gather and study together and learn. May we have wisdom and understanding. Pray for Pastor Eric as he's back uh, teaching for Matthew, that you be with him and speed along the healing process. And we thank you that he's getting better. And we pray for wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, back to where we were in January. And uh, we're going to start with verse 28 of Acts 20, 38 through 30. And I don't know that we'll get that far because I have a lot of cross-references. To set the scene, if you remember, Paul had previously spent three years teaching in Ephesus. That'll come up in this address. And he came to Miletus, which is south of Ephesus, called for the elders. And there, on his way to Jerusalem, met with the elders and laid out what is some of the most important material in the New Testament about elders and leadership and what the church is all about. And so I've been teaching on that and then taking a lot of notes and saving material uh, in, in my research because I hope to define the church biblically, which is a very difficult thing because for almost 2,000 years, the church has been defined by church history rather than by the Bible. And it seems uh, that we need to at least look at all the material that is pertinent to the definition of the church, number one, which people do. If you go to a good conservative seminary, they can define the church. But the very hard thing is to actually apply it because when you go to an organized, traditional church that's been around for however long, the thing you say to seminary isn't going to be accepted by the leadership of the denomination because everybody has their own unique traditions and priorities. And the definitions that we know to be true don't actually get practiced. So what we want to do is get the definitions right and then think about what is, would it look like to actually practice what the Bible says should be done by local churches. What are the leaders? What are the priorities? What is the teaching? What should be done? What should not be done? And so we're going to continue to study that. So today, uh, Acts twenty twenty eight, calling and duties of local church leaders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Last week, Eric did a great job of laying out church leadership in, in one lecture about apostles, prophets, and what the leaders are or not. That's, if you weren't here, it's worth listening to um, Eric's lecture from last week. Now, I'll continue on this one. First of all, I have highlighted there in red, be on guard. And prosako, which is the Greek word there, it's used here as an imperative. In this kind of a context, the imperative is a command 
that's not optional. It's not optional that the leadership, elders, would guard the flock, be on guard. And we'll look at what that means. And this is the one thing that typically does not happen. And I know from experience from decades ago that when you actually do guard the flock, you get a lot of angry pushback from your friends and whether it's associates in ministry from other congregations or some within the congregation. This goes back to the 80s, I'm thinking. They don't like this. So a lot of times the on-guard part happens by um, traveling ministers uh, that would perhaps raise the red flag. Wait a second, why is this coming into the church? But the entrenched folks who are leaders in various denominations or in churches don't like anybody correcting them. It, it really, you wouldn't believe the reaction you get if you correct teaching that's being done, in a, whether it's a church or a denomination. Because they don't think it's right that you should ever teach what, correct whatever someone's teaching that's unbiblical. So being on guard is necessary. We prayed for you. Taking, we're taking up base. You you covered the leadership last week, so now we're looking at local elders and talking about the word prosako, which is used twenty four times in the New Testament to be on guard. Okay, twenty four times in the New Testament. Here it's used in the imperative. It's also used that way in Luke twelve one. If you want to turn there, Luke twelve one, and I'll read it to you. And it's it's pretty amazing how often you find this in Luke Acts. Okay, Luke twelve one. It says, "Be on your guard uh, if your brother sins." Excuse me, I got to go back. I jumped ahead. Luke 12, 1. Under these circumstances, after so, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, that's the same word we have here for be on guard, beware, prosako. Also in the imperative, I've got a study together. I'm hoping to do something with maybe uh, whether a podcast or write a little article. But I've been doing a study on status, religious status vis-a-vis others as a danger that's warned about in Luke-Acts. And in fact, more than just Luke-Acts, you see it also in Matthew. And so when there is what appears to be success, Jesus warns about what can destroy that, and that's um, hypocrisy and finding favorable status in the eyes of other religious people. And the one thing that 
shoots down people who are called and have some uh, God-given talents to teach that will just almost paralyze them with fear is the possibility of being rejected by their peers in whatever religious community they're in. That's the beware. And I've seen that continually. It's, it's a huge, huge thing. And um, when we first, uh, I'm saying the folks I was working with at the time in the late 80s, started warning the flock about false teachings such as inner healing, uh, the Robert Schuller self-esteem reformation, um, the seduction of Christianity that was on the table, and so on. There were people that were really pushing back on that very strongly, and a number of people left over it because they were the people that we corrected that were national leaders were people they loved and adored. And when you, when you correct those people that have this status, then people don't like it. They think that you've grieved the Holy Spirit. And so more than once I've had to say, explain to me again how preaching Christ alone, Scripture alone, forgiveness of sins, and teaching the Word of God is grieving the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. Tell me how that works. Well, they believe that the flamboyant preacher, now I'm dating myself, but you know what? Being old in the Bible is actually called a good thing. A presbyteros is an old man. Uh, But Robert Schuller was so popular, the Crystal Cathedral, self-esteem, all these books and stuff. So, well, how dare you say that, that there's something wrong with it? Go ahead. Uh, By being on guard for the overseers, in turn, they would be on guard for the flock, kind of the same thing that uh, Paul warned Timothy about when he started uh, shepherding the church. Yes, and I have a whole bunch of cross-references to cover this week and next and however long we're in this because it's defining the church, her message, leaders, and priorities, okay? So um, this beware in Luke twelve one, Luke tells us details for a reason, okay? If there's anything we learn from Luke X, Luke is brilliant writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, traveling companion of Paul. And the more I study it, the more amazed I am that this two-volume work, the detail, the previews, the little things that show up. Why is this here? Later you find out. So many thousands gathered. They were stepping on one another. And why would he say then, beware? Beware, because success in the eyes of religious consumers is the most dangerous thing that faces the preacher. It'll shoot people down 
It'll lead people to think that they can't fail. It'll lead people to let down their guard, to uh, abuse other people, to treat people shamefully that are the Lord's flock, and so on. The danger is real. The leaven of the Pharisees, they were, remember the, we were looking at the bent over woman that Jesus healed on Sabbath a while back in a sermon. And the chief, the synagogue chief, the chief ruler, I think it's called chief ruler, was outraged about Sabbath. And so here is this woman who was oppressed by Satan, released, loosed, and this guy would rather, he doesn't mind loosing a donkey, but not a woman. And so this, this leaven is insidious and it gets in there and what happens is, Eric and I saw this firsthand, someone who knows these things and is capable of functioning in the right situation will just blank out and refuse to teach it. Remember that? And it's, it's Sometimes it just seems astounding. You know what the Bible says. You know how to comfort people when they need comfort. But you're bringing in uh, emergent uh, guys and atheists now that was in charge of the thing. How did that happen? How did that happen? Because the one thing people... Fear is failure when they're leader in leadership and they fear the lack of approval that could happen in the eyes of their peers. The chief priests, the other Pharisees, the people that are in charge, the Sanhedrin, what if they don't like me? And that fear is, is real. Um, standing up against that sort of thing will cost you um, and that's why I believe this beware prosico is in Luke twelve one for a really important reason. So thousands of people stepping on one another, hypocrisy. Now, we see this in civil government. It's pretty obvious. There's an old saying, power corrupts. But that's really not exactly accurate the human race is corrupt. Amen. Okay? The problem is the Adamic race has fallen. Right. And the cause of the fall was pride. You can be like God. Yep. God is keeping something from you. You can know what he hasn't chosen to reveal. You can do what he says you can't do, and you can be like God, be your own lawgiver. They sinned and were kicked out of Eden, out of the garden, and so the corruption is already there. What power does is give that corruption uh, fertilizer and uh, steroids or whatever analogy you want to do so that it can just run amok without any restraint. So when you don't have 
restraint, uh, there's no end. It'll, it'll just go crazy. And that's what you see happen. There needs to be restraint because you can't count on the fallen sinner without any external restraint to restrain himself. Do you see what I mean? So if we reward people for certain things with status, with money, with power, and so on, if what they're being rewarded for is a bad thing, you see corruption going crazy. Now, that's in all realms of life. But it particularly insidious when it gets into the church. And people are abused by those who are to be their leaders that are to care for them. And you can't count on selfless service being the norm unless God's, if we do things biblically and the word of God pierces us to the heart, the thing that will happen is we're going to care for one another and not be motivated by how great I am. Go ahead. It is to agree with you. Uh, I just want to say that I've seen this in the homeless. I've seen this in uh, uh Religion. I've seen this in politics. There's one thing that's very, very people want really badly, and that's to feel good. Yeah. You know, feel good politics, feel good religion. The, some of the homeless are some of the greatest philosophers in the world, so they want to feel good about themselves in some way or the other. And the thing that uh, is not the opposite of that is not so much fear; it's feeling inadequate. That who I am is inadequate to the task at hand. Okay. And the answer in the Bible, and well, as we go through First Corinthians, uh, eventually get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 isn't about what people think it is, by the way, First Corinthians, because um, it's about the reason the, in the body of Christ, every member is necessary. That's the theme. The, the people with the high-powered status, Eric was talking about last week, they're looking at that and assigning to themselves things that aren't, aren't even valid gifts. I was reading someone who said, well, I get words of knowledge. That's in First Corinthians 12. So they take that, and their word of knowledge is about the secrets of somebody else's heart or the cause of their psychological dilemma or which demons over what city, you name it. And then they are going to use that word of knowledge to bind the demon over the city or to solve problems that nobody can solve. And what they do with their word of knowledge without even proving that that's what Paul is talking about is gain status and power in the eyes of the people. And it's just unmitigated. And they're doing the exact opposite of what 1 Corinthians 12 is about. Nobody's fighting over who has the ministry of helps. <laughs> but I am the prophet of God with the word of knowledge. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. It's sad. I got an email from a CAC reader just um, yesterday. I, I, I didn't get a chance to reply yet. People are losing a lot of money paying deliverance counselors to cast demons out of Christians. And they may feel better for a week or two, and then it's back for more. Thousands of dollars. 
to manipulate the world of the spirits. So be the, be, being on guard means no, this will not happen. There's always going to be people, we're all suffering, we're all less than what will be at the resurrection. And when we love one another and care for one another, the leaders aren't looking for status, they're looking for the well-being of the flock, whatever that might look like. And the human nature after the fall is to figure out how to keep score. Who's the greatest? If you look at how that comes up in, in Luke, it's telling. So thousands of people stepping on each other, and Jesus, rather than taking up an offering, says, beware. Here lies danger. Luke 17.3, let's look at that. Luke 17.3. Again, it's about relationships. And I'm just looking at, I looked up the Greek word, Prosecco, where it was used in, in the New Testament, and uh, 24 times in the New Testament, but especially in the imperative. Luke 17:3, be on your guard. Luke 17:3, be on your guard. If it says be on your guard, that means pay attention. This is dangerous. You got to look at this. Because this is the thing that will shoot down the Christian and the relationships in the church. Be on your guard. What does it say? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. So that danger there is unforgiveness and trying to take out some sort of retribution against whoever harmed us and not having the patience to wait for the Lord's return who alone knows the motives of the heart and therefore being uh, driven by bitterness and retribution destroying the family of God. And there are many passages that say it's better to be wrong than to harm the flock. Because that's how precious the Lord's flock is to Jesus. And if somebody makes me unhappy by what they said or what they did, it behooves me to forgive when there's repentance and even if there isn't, to be patient and uh, go to the person and, and so on. But to carry grudges, and it, 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 it'll eat you up from the inside and cause bitterness. Um, so there's another beware. Just as examples here. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy 4.13. This is another one, prosaco. Prosico, I should say, which is translated, be on your guard, beware, or devote yourself to in the context of 1 Corinthians 4.13. But this is very important. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to, that's prosico, the same word as we have here, 
for be on guard. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So this shows us uh, what it means for the elder to care for the flock. Public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. The word of God needs to be taught to the church. The tools to interpret and understand the Bible need to be taught to the church. The, the poison pill in church history is what some would call a clergy laity division. That you have the robed aristocrats with their fancy garb. They are the authorities. They know something. They're the holy man or woman, as the case may be. And then there's the folks that just show up and give money and do what they're told to do. That is not the biblical model. And Timothy is told to devote himself to public reading of scripture, exhortation, teaching. Why is that significant? Why is that so significant? Because the scripture is the word of God to the whole flock. The preacher is under the authority of scripture just as much as every single believer is. And if the preacher refuses to teach the word of God accurately, anybody can say, pastor, preacher, teacher, this is what it says. We should have a love for the truth and be thankful if somebody can correct us before it gets worse. So we need an educated people. The word laity uh, or lay people is a redundancy. The word for people is laos. So you might as well say the people people. Okay? So um, the clergy, the clergy idea is high church. This is a sacerdotalism. The uh, I was reading about this this last week. I read a, an essay, uh, which was a sermon, actually, by a guy by the name of uh, Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper, 1870, Dutch Reformed, defending the institutional church. The church, he says, is an institution and an organism. So I read that as uh, Diane was getting physical therapy. I sat and was reading this Kuyper. He admits... The institutional church isn't found in scripture. It didn't develop until the apostles were gone. But he says we have to have it. So here you have, and this was at a time when uh, the Netherlands, where my ancestors came from, had a state church for the most part. And that was being threatened at the time. Like France was a state church, which was Catholic. The Netherlands was a reformed state church. England is uh, Anglican state church was a version of, of uh, Catholicism. The state church always has these layers of authorities and bishops and whatever. The, you can't create that system without it abusing people. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin, they have this, it's just built in. Power corrupts, no, corrupt people with power get more corrupt. 
the Bible restrains. So if you give somebody fancy garb, a fancy title, power to make decrees, you will have abuse 100% of the time. Because the only type of person that can be given that sort of thing is sinners. And even sinners saved by grace, if they had sense, would run from it. Don't want it. I don't want it. I need the word public reading of scripture. Think about it. They didn't have, they couldn't go to the copy machine. Okay. So if if Timothy's reading the scriptures to everyone publicly, they know what God said and they can judge whether the pastor's telling them the truth. And then our teaching is to be um, exhortation, parakaleo, to call alongside. That word can be translated comforting. It can be exhort, comfort, and so on. There's a range of meaning. The Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the, 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 the comforter. And then teaching, teaching the word of God. So the basic things, dear saints, think about this. The basic things that God's provided that'll, that if in place will cause the well-being of the sheep and to, to flourish, the sheep to grow, people are born again by the spirit of God who inspired the Bible and the Holy Spirit causes us to want to serve one another. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth that the world cannot, who the world cannot receive. The Holy Spirit of truth will cause us to love the truth. The Holy Spirit of truth will cause us to uh, change when we hear the word of God taught because he inspired the word of God. It's his words to us. Okay, the traditions of men are not spirit-inspired. So that's why exhortation, teaching, public reading of Scripture. Dr. Schnabel says this, traditional historical origin of the term, he's talking about prosecco, is less important than it's used in the New Testament. And he mentions Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.7, 1 Peter 2.25. In the context of Lewis's narrative of Paul's ministry, as supported by the evidence of Paul's letters, including the pastoral epistles, oh, excuse me, he's talking about the terms of the elder and overseer, not necessarily uh, prosecco, excuse me, out of context there. I wrote this a couple months ago. Designation of elder and overseer refer to the same office. It's the same office. Where did the word bishops come from? Does anybody know? Yeah, yeah. Someone, Steve Minty, Minty, who was teaching Greek, came and told me that after the last time I was on this Sunday school. The reason the word bishop showed up in the Bible at all it was an accommodation of the Church of England. The word for presbyteros and episkopos doesn't mean bishop. It's used to be the same people here. But if the, 
if the king is the king, James is in charge of the Church of England, and they have bishops, you better have bishops in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, everything else like that. So um, the point is, we've just, we can learn this. It's not, you wouldn't believe the pain and sorrow over the King James only thing when it came around. I wrote a booklet about it. People will leave and never come again. If you use any verse, but you use anything but the King James, I won't listen to you. You're corrupt. You've been deceived. And then they say, well, you got the wrong Greek text. They don't even know Greek. They don't know where this... I will not even tolerate that nonsense for one second. Go find your King James. I won't listen to you. Because it's, it's not giving people the tools they need. To force people to listen to the Bible in a language they don't know is abusive to the flock. Because they don't understand it. And... That is not right. It's like the Catholics saying you got to have the Latin, the Latin Mass. You don't know. You don't know. Okay, that sounds holy to me. Does anybody you know at your workplace speak King James English? <laughs> okay, so I will stand for the right of the people to hear the Word of God in their own vernacular. Luther did that. It's part of the Reformation. People should have the scriptures translated into the common vernacular. Go ahead. Um, real quick, just with the King James, I've had to deal with that just recently. And yeah. um, ironically, just to let you know, too, the issue with manuscript evidence, think of this simple analogy. Let's say you wrote a letter, and the letter said it was a grocery list. Go get milk, eggs, and bread. And you had 10 people copy it. And out of the nine people, they said, go get milk, eggs, and bread. But one of them said, go get milk, eggs, and a candy bar. Well, by looking, let's say you got rid of the original. By looking at the nine out of the ten, you'd be able to determine what the original was. One person got it wrong, but the other nine are right. That's what textual criticism's about, getting back to the original, because we don't have the original autographs. What we have are what's called opographs, the copies. And so the King James, the Texas Receptus, is built on six manuscripts. Do you know how many we have now in the critical text? 5,700. So, for example, when the Texas Receptus, they were, um, Erasmus was translating the book of Revelation, he didn't even have a Greek text to use. So he had to back translate from the Latin. Latin That's yeah. how poor it is. And so the King James um, analogy that I would make is it's like a Volkswagen Beetle merging onto the Indianapolis 500 when it comes to the manuscript evidence. But yet, like Bob is saying, people are, in fact, Bob, you had to write a whole book uh, or a pamphlet yeah, rebuking it. And you can go to, I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent. I was in seminary at the time while they had the, still had a good That's a great there. story, yeah. Yeah, and went into the, they had a historical part from the 19th century in the library. This was in the 90s before the internet was as big as it is. It was just getting started. And people were saying, oh, the, the manuscripts are bad. This is bad. That's bad. Westcott and Hort are bad. And so on and so forth. So got the book of the person that was sent out. Some wealthy person had this Ripplinger's book sent to ordained ministers. So I got one. And she made some claims. Westcott and Hort are spiritists. And here's the proof. So we went and got the book that was cited by this Gail Ripplinger, 
in because I had was an active seminary student, I could get into the historical part of the library at Bethel, found Westcott's book, or Hoare, whichever one she was citing it to, found where where the section was, and she took like four words off of one page, skipped way over a bunch of paragraphs, and found a few more words, stuck them together, that made it sound like he was a spiritist. But when you read the whole thing, it was nothing of the sort. So how many people get these books that are convincing them they can't trust their Bibles, that the people that gave us the text are spiritists. And how I went to way over the top to go to that much work to refute it, to, to find the original sources, prove that she misstated it, prove that it was false, write a document to show that they could try this evidence and that they were wrong, and then publish it and then they come back and say, okay, not Ripples, you're here, read this one. <laughs> then they give me another King James only book. Now that conspiracy theory isn't good enough. Let's do this one. And finally, it's, it's, you'll be on month after month after month of a bunny trail while these wicked people are taking readable Bibles, like the New American Standard or whichever one, the ESV. I start with the Greek, but... You can't have that. You've got to listen to this one you don't understand. And then they use the ending of Mark 16, which wasn't in the original, and they make their doctrine out of that, the snake handling. You have, to, you have to be baptized to be saved and so on. And so I don't have any tolerance for that. Why? Because we've got to protect the flock, not the conspiracy theorists. Amen. What's the best translation from the Greek? I, that's not, it's kind of, I can't tell you because... Every, if you notice, I tell you which one I'm using. I do all, all the exegetical work first from the Greek and then look at the context and each Sunday determine which English translation best brings out the thought. And here's why that would be important. People that are language experts that are really good at with a language aren't necessarily theological experts. And there may be things in the context, like in 1 Corinthians, that Paul is using a phrase a certain way for a certain reason that I can see because it's repeated that the Greek could mean two or three different things or be said two or three different ways. But knowing what Paul's issue has been, it needs to come out a certain way. And there's usually one and so I'll tell you which one I'm using and be willing to have it put to scrutiny to people that know some of uh, the, the issues. That's not to say your Bible's not reliable, but Paul may be emphasizing one thing and there's a range of meaning and not everybody can notice that's what he's doing. The same thing, especially with Luke Acts. It's easier with Luke Acts because Luke is very clear how he does it. So as I hear you talk about all the study that you put into this, it's like now you almost have to start having on your bulletin like sermon not generated by AI. Because I've been hearing about some pastors, you can just ask chat GPT to write your sermon and you have your sermon in just a few minutes. Oh, I, I hear that the, yeah, people are turning in papers in school that artificial intelligence did. 
probably came out better than some of the stuff that's written out here. But it's, no, see, the need to do this is already written in Scripture. Be diligent to show yourself approved, a workman who doesn't have to be ashamed. Okay? So you don't have to be, I don't know Hebrew, and I admit that's, I don't. I decided to put my eggs in the basket of Greek all the way back in Bible college. Eric uh, um, knows Hebrew. Others do. So you got to focus on what you can do. But the point is, this is doable. We can, we can be workmen, not ashamed because we did the study. But when you don't study, and you get, even in a, my, my dad, no, my, I think it was my mom or dad told me back when in a little church in Archer, Iowa, that sir, the pastor got up and was doing a sermon. And one of the people they knew got Decision Magazine in the mail. The sermon was uh, taken right out of Decision Magazine without any attribution. The pastor didn't even write their own sermon. But uh, having been in that church when it was really liberal, I think Decision Magazine was probably a step forward <laughs> compared to U.S. News and World Report. But the point is, it isn't about high church and robes and status and uh, tradition and all this stuff. It's about public reading of Scripture, exhortation, teaching, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry because tradition will not carry the, for, the, the faith forward. We saw that happen at Bethel, where in 15 years, it went from some of the best conservative, solid Bible scholars whose commentaries we read, Dr. Stein, I had, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Schreiner, Dr. Block, one after another, top scholars, Left because they wanted to bring in the therapeutic gospel. And then comes the emergent. Then comes Doug Padgett. And he wanted to be rid of binary reductionism. Now we know what that means. He, he was way ahead of his time. What does it mean? You can't have either or. You can't have either or. So what are they talking about in the political world? Non-binary. Male and female are too constrictive of categories. And Paget and company are in on that sort of thing now. So, yeah, you can't have God and, or even Peter Jones, twoism, God and creation. That's binary. The creator to creation. Male and female, that's binary. Good and evil, that's binary. Truth and error, that's binary. Paget says we've got to get rid of it, Right. That's actually in the sermon today. Absolutely. That was the, the, my orientation lecture. I just leave the airlines. The first words out of Doug Paget's mouth, he's invited by the provost that brought in all the heretics. And it's Doug Paget. The opening line is, we have to stop binary reductionism now. And when I gave my first emergent lecture refuting it, I said, well, you either have heaven or hell. You have the sheep or the goats. And you have people like Barry Manilow or you don't like Barry Manilow. <laughs> right? <laughs> Life is binary. You want to torture me, make me listen to that for an hour. <laughs> binary. Well, so now it's coming in everywhere. But don't be thrown. See, the attacks often come from the right, if you want to call it that. 
that King James thing keeps rearing its ugly head. And people are going to get the Bible in the common vernacular and we're going to translate. We use the Greek, but we translate it and put it in context. So there's looking at these, uh, let's go on, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is loaded with concepts. Eric did a great job last week dealing with all these different ministries that are in the New Testament. Overseers is episkopos, where we get our word episcopal. Shepherd, poimino, is a verb form of uh, a shepherd as a person. And uh, the elders are presbyteros, older men is what that word means. They're all the same people here. There's no archbishops. There's no bishops. There's no modern-day apostles over multiple churches. There's no... But see, here's what happens. The, the bigger it gets and the more trans... Translocal is a word, and I tend to use it, and i got to see if that's communicating properly. But beyond the local, the bigger it gets, and then you have what you can say district superintendent. Now, this is what happens, and I'm not trying to be some genius that knows better than everything in church history, but you'd have to say it's not in the Bible. Okay? So when something goes wrong, that happened. My dad told me a story. We were fishing one time. There was a troubled pastor that had a, a real big problem in the last church. They sent him to a little town there. and uh, So he went and talked to, I think, the district superintendent, Why'd you send him over here? This guy's got big problems, and that's why they, they, he was taken out of the other church. Well, you're so nice there. We thought you could help him. That's what they told my dad. We wouldn't, so the church has to help the troubled pastor, which is fine to help troubled pastors, but the district superintendent decided where they went, nobody else. And the bishop decides what happens at the district. So you have a hierarchical system like they had with the Sanhedrin where Jesus said, beware the leaven, the Pharisees. So Stable says the plural of both terms connotes plural leadership. The leadership of the community consists not of one single overseer or, quote, bishop, but of a group of elders slash overseers. This is Dr. Schnabel. He has a great commentary. Well, the overseers lead the flock, they are at the same time part of the flock. Notice that? Among which the Holy Spirit made you overseer. So the leaders of the flock are a part of the flock and are under the same authority as everyone else in the flock, which is the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer. And roles may change, but the danger of status rivalry exists in every situation because of the fall. Remember what caused the fall. You can be like God, knowing good and evil, you can sin and not die. (coughs) 
Sinners love to have power and lord it over others. So the authority of Scripture to preach of every believer, elders who care for the well-being of the flock, is God's plan for the well-being of the flock and of every member and the preservation of the gospel itself. Okay, yes, uh, Luann. Yeah, and I'm just looking at this um, where he purchased with his own blood. You know, each believer is so precious to the Lord that he would have died for each and every one of us. And so we want to be able to you know, warn and prepare people too for different things, just like the binary stuff and other things. If if we don't talk about things that are outside these walls, people can fall into the parable of the soils where they fall away because of the trials of life and different things. And we need to be aware how this is impacting each and every believer because some people are weak in the faith and some are not. But I, so I bring as an example, uh, the World Health Organization is putting together amendments right now where they want to do something called One Health. And it sounds like a great thing, but imagine your children growing up and what One Health means is that we have focused too much on human in our health care. And so what we have to do is we have to bring this all together and make animals and the environment equal in how we do health care. And I'm just saying the only reason I bring this up is because people leave these walls and they go out into real life and these can be stumbling blocks and we have to be encouraging we have to point them to the promises where we are precious in the lord's sight and keep reminding and going over and you know sharing the gospel and how much they're loved yeah i would say as a matter of fact the overarching worldview that we need to have so that we immediately see this is wrong is that the reason there are nations and boundaries and civil authorities was in order to keep Babel from achieving their goal of building a tower to reach into heaven and be one and be like God. To undo what God did when he scattered the people after the flood. That has never gone away. And the oneism is saying there's no distinction between humans created in the image of God and all the rest of the creation. And so everything is at stake, and you can't assume there's a culture that's going to build a Christian worldview. We do that by teaching it from Scripture and making decisions based on Scripture about what's true and false and right and wrong. What's binding is what God has said. So... Those that worship the creature and the creator are facing judgment and wrath. Now, when I was converted, before I was converted, and I left the liberal church, not because I wanted to be religious, but because I thought it had nothing to say, uh, because they didn't believe in miracles and they didn't believe the Bible's true, so why be religious? But again, the culture didn't believe in miracles, so we can't either. So let's, let me say a few more things from the Schnabel, because it, it shows other people see this. It says, Schnabel, while the overseers lead the flock, they are at the same time part of the flock. Uh, that is, they are not set over against the church, 
but are an integral part of it. The care for the church, says Snavel, is a task to which the Holy Spirit has appointed them. See that? Eric mentioned that last week. The Holy Spirit made you overseers. Now, how we determine that is usually where the different, we, there's different ways we look at it. But I think that the church has a say as well based on Matthew 18. And uh, take, if, if your brother sins against you, go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, take witnesses. If you don't listen to them, take it to the church. So I would take that to mean you cannot silence the church. Does that make sense? Okay. But it doesn't mean you don't have leadership either. So we try to embody that in the Constitution that elders have responsibility, but they're also accountable to the church. That's why we're gospel of grace. We left a group that decided to silence the church. At least that's why I left. Once they silenced the church, I was gone. You cannot silence the church. The elders are saying, we speak, you listen to us, you can't tell us anything. So that's how we ended up making sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, But there's no, we live in a fallen world, I understand that. While the older overseers lead the flock, they're part of the flock. He points out some of the same things. I noticed this, by the way. The categories are already there. I'm not claiming that I see categories that nobody ever saw. That's totally false. That's not true. The categories are there. They're in the Bible. Theologians have seen these categories and articulated them throughout the history of the church. But what doesn't happen is taking those and plying them in real church situations and living it out. So the theologians can tell you the visible church, the invisible church, the church militant, the church universal and triumphant. Those are already in heaven. The definitions are there. And even after the Reformation, they basically understood this. After the Reformation, the question is, well, if the Rome church isn't the church, like Luther and, and Zwingli and so on were saying, then how do you define a church? How do you even know what a church is? Here's the basic definition they came up with. Wherever people gather and the scripture is purely taught, and here's where terminology I would use, and the sacraments administered according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there a church exists. That was the sine qua non, the without which not, there's a church. I wouldn't use the word sacraments, but I would say the ordinances. But it's the same idea. The word's taught, like Timothy, and we have the Lord's Supper, and, and we have baptism, we have the fellowship of the saints, there is a church. You don't have to have stained glass windows. You don't have to have a pope. You don't have to have pews. You don't have to have traditions and hierarchy, but you have to have the word purely taught and 
means of grace. Yes. Yeah, Brother I just want to flesh out what you're saying right now. I think this is utmost of importance, what you're saying right now. You just said something. You said we split the, the church split. One church said you listen to the elders. The other church, meaning us, we listen to the church. We listen. Now, you're saying we listen to God's word. God's word defines what we listen to. Is that correct? That's well, what we're saying. I, I don't want to, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's all forgiven. I, I'm not No, no I know, but I just want to define, okay. make definitions. Eric, Eric was the point person. <coughs> they silenced Eric at the key point. And I was there, but when, I, when the people were told, you can't come and tell us anything, they were saying Eric couldn't teach the way he was teaching. So the biggest difference is we listen to the elders or we listen to the church? Well, you can't, you gotta, it doesn't mean the church is always right. It means the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And so as the word is taught, Eric was teaching the Bible verse by verse and use it like we do now and giving scriptures for applications and so we're learning the Bible learning the Bible, learning the Bible and then some folks come along and say what do they say? Your teaching isn't suitable for the church Yeah, that's right. They wanted applications that were outside of being bound by the scriptures. So we always talk about what the text means and then how it applies. They weren't accepting the applications that were logically connected to the text. They wanted me to become a lawgiver myself and come up with applications that were outside of the text. So if I gave a message about the atonement of Christ and I talked about the applications according to that, that wasn't sufficient. I was supposed to have a five-point plan on helping your family live a better life now. That was the kind of idea. And so Bob and I rejected that, and that's when, as he said, they silence the church. He silenced Eric and then silenced the congregation and went off to find better living. Not that there is any Bible there, but do you think that human wisdom has more power than the Word of God? No, and I think this is really definitive and very good that we can get right to the heart of the issue is that we listen to God's Word. The authority is God's Word, and we're not going to do man's thinking. In other words, um, the elders of the church are subject to God's word, and we're not going to listen to anybody outside of the right. authority of God's word, period. And that's it. That's what we do here. So well, I think that's, that's a good by definition. God's grace, I think biblically, the leaders are elders. Elders and deacons, overseers are the same thing. And authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer, Free exchange of ideas, but the best reading has to prevail. We don't say, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? We, we say, as we read it, what did God say? And does this validly apply the way we're applying it? So my application of this text is this. And, I, and you can judge this. Be on guard. That's a command. There's danger the elders have to guard the flock. Do we agree? Okay. For yourselves. In other words, the elders, I'll get to that. I have some applications coming up in future slides. Make sure you don't go off the rails. And for the flock. Make sure you stay on the straight. Take, be on guard for the flock. The Holy Spirit has set you, literally in the Greek, place your overseers. 
The Holy Spirit makes elders. It's our job to recognize who they are when they show up. And there's certain things to look for. And mostly we find out here and in Timothy. Uh, shepherd is to care for like a shepherd cares for a flock. So Lord's flock, he's a chief, chief shepherd. And we treat everybody by God's grace the way the Lord himself wants them treated. Um, the Holy Spirit sets elders. We recognize what he did and make it formal as the case is appropriate. And we keep in mind he purchased the flock with his blood. They're precious to God. And one person in the flock isn't more important because they are louder. They're more interesting. They have more willpower. They have more talents. That's not the point. The person we may not even notice is just as precious to the Lord as anybody that we think is significant. Does that make sense? And that's why we have the mics to go here. That's in order to keep us honest. We went too long. Sorry. All right, let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that we can gather here and for people who have a hunger to learn and to help us and to help one another. Pray for Eric as he preaches the word of God to us, that your word would be clear and our hearts would be open and we'd be believers who would be willing to take action and live according to what you've said. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear saints.